is Tomorrow Today, The Things That Matter with Keith Darcy. I remember like it was yesterday. It was June 1982, and I had taken my girlfriend to see the premiere, the the beginning of a new movie that I was just so excited about. It was the new Star Trek movie. It shows what a geek I am, right? Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And if any of you have seen it, you'll remember there was one iconic scene, one iconic line in that movie, and it was Spock speaking to Kirk, and he said, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And I'll tell you, that line really resonated with me. At the time, I was a paramedic. I had been an EMT, and then in 1981, I became a paramedic, and I went on in my career to serve as a police officer as a deep-sea rescue diver, as a special forces soldier. And this notion of the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few or the one became almost a mantra to me. It became the, the, the guiding, I don't know, light of my, my commitment to service. And I really was committed to that and felt that way until about 10 years ago. About 10 years ago, I was on a trip to London. I was keynoting at, at a conference. And I don't even remember how I came upon it, but I had gotten a copy of a short story by the brilliant writer Ursula K. Le Guin. And it was a story that she wrote back in 1974, and it was titled The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And if you haven't read it, spoiler alert, I'm going to give it away to you now. So you might want to pause this and read it yourself and then come back. But the story begins with the description of a summer festival in this city of Omelas, And Omelas is a true utopia. All the inhabitants' needs are met and everyone is happy all the time. Well, not everyone. It turns out the prosperity and the happiness of Omelas depends on the perpetual misery of a single child. In a basement, under one of the beautiful public buildings of Omelas, there's a room. It has one locked door, no window, and the narrator describes it as basically this living hell, this horrific little cell. And in that room, there's a child. He looks to be about six, but he's actually nearly 10 years old. And he looks younger than he is because he's left there to starve. He's neglected. He's tortured. And for some reason, and the narrator never really explains this, but for some reason, the utopian bliss of Omelas depends on that child's misery. And so it's left there to suffer. Everyone in the town, everyone in Omelas knows it. And... There are some who can't abide allowing that child to suffer just so they can be happy. And even at that, they don't actually do anything. They don't rescue the child. They're the ones who walk away from Omelas. Now, Le Guin tells the story, I think, I think, to expose what she considers to be the inherent immorality of utilitarianism. And and if you're unfamiliar with that, utilitarianism is the doctrine that actions are right if they're useful or if they're for the benefit of the many. And so I'm kind of left now with wondering who's right, Le Guin or Spock? Was it ethical or moral to keep that child in the basement because it kept everyone else happy? Do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one? I mean, on, on the one hand, that was the argument used to justify slavery in the United States, right? The, the misery, the suffering of a few uh, helped support uh, a country, a nation. 
landowning gentry. And, and I think they justified that to themselves. I, I assume they did. But that's also what JFK, I believe, meant when he said, ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you. And so a, a complete different side of that coin. And it's also the rationale we use when we send soldiers to war. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And all that always leaves me wondering, and it has for the last decade, are ethics determined by what? By society, geography, temporality, rules, religion? I don't know. Well, let's get some clarity on that. And, and fortunately for us, the guest we have today is the perfect person to talk to, quite literally the perfect person to talk to. Our guest, Keith Dorothy, has combined a 40-year career as a senior executive and corporate director with his passion for education. He's on the board of the Notre Dame Deloitte Center for Ethical Leadership, the Center for Ethics at Emory University, and he served as chairman of the Global Center for Ethics and Social Responsibility at St. Thomas Aquinas College until 2021, where he was also a trustee. Since 2006, Keith Darcy has served on the steering committee of the Chair of Excellency in Law and Business Ethics at CY Paris University School of Law. He served on the board of directors at E-Trade Bank and its affiliates, as well as for New York National Bank. He was chairman of the Better Business Bureau Foundation of New York for a dozen years. For 25 years, Keith taught ethics and leadership, the executive programs at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, serving as their executive in residence. He served as associate dean and distinguished professor of business at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. He is on the Global Anti-Corruption Council of West World Economic Forum. He's contributed his expertise to numerous books. He's widely published, quoted, referenced in, in newspapers, magazines, television shows. He's been a keynote speaker and panelist in hundreds of venues worldwide, including for the United Nations, OECD, and Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Keith is currently the president of Darcy Partners, a boutique consulting firm formed in 2002 that works with boards and senior executives on a wide range of very complex governance, ethics, compliance, and reputational risk challenges. On a personal note, I have to share that I've had the extraordinary privilege of knowing some incredible people in the course of my very weird life. But for 20 years now, it's been Keith Darcy who I have looked to as my North Star. He is my mentor, my dear friend, and without getting too Gilbert and Sullivan here, uh, I think he is the very mate model of a modern moral man, and frankly, the sort of person I've always aspired to become. So with that, uh, let me introduce uh, and welcome to the conversation my dear friend, my mentor, Keith Darcy. Keith, thanks for joining the show. JT, great to be with you as always. You know, I... I I'm so particularly glad to have this conversation with you publicly. And, and we have had just these wonderful conversations over the years. And by the way, I met, and I'm going to refer to him during this conversation as Darcy. <laughs> it's not disrespect. Uh, I, I have no idea why, but I've always referred to Keith as Darcy. <laughs> it's true. I met Darcy about 20 years ago, and that was when he was with the Better Business Bureau of New York. And I had been retained to do uh, just a very brief engagement with them. And I was speaking to the board and Darcy turned to me and I'd never met him before. And he said, we're having lunch tomorrow at one o'clock and here's where we're having it. And it was 
more of just uh, a declaration than an invitation. And uh, it was the, the best order I ever followed in my life. And, and we formed this best friendship. And, and I've been the beneficiary of, you know, I, I read his CV, or that was just the highlights reel, by the way, uh, his um, remarkable CV. And in prepping for this, I'm reminded that Darcy's one of the few people who've been at this even longer than me. Uh, <laughs> he was teasing me before we came on the air that, uh, you know, he has uh, reference and, and memories even older than mine. And in fact, Keith, you started your your journey in ethics, if I recall correctly, around the time of Watergate. Isn't that right? That is that is absolutely correct. I got married the day uh, that Watergate occurred, uh, the break-in. And uh, by the way, that was the beginning of a national conversation about ethics and integrity and character. And the business ethics movement began to flourish, however slowly in the beginning and however fast more recently. But that was clearly the beginning of a focus on business ethics uh, in, in the national dialogue. Wow. And, and, you know, is it just me or when you look back at that time and you look to now, hasn't that conversation sort of ebbed and flowed? I mean, it's it's amazing to me how many changes we've seen over the last 50 years with respect to expectations of ethical conduct in organizations and even societally, don't you think? Yes. But what stuns me, frankly, JT, is the fact that for all of the uh, good that has come and emerged over the years and all of the uh, uh, bumper guards uh, that have been placed on business, that we still have an extraordinary amount of scandals going on uh, at work and in business. You know, and I, I think that's so absolutely true. And I wonder, is it that we have so many or is it just my misperception that it almost seems like we have more. It, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here. If I tell the the listeners your standard that you taught me uh, way back when we first met, you used to tell people, uh, not just me, but you would speak at conferences and you would tell everyone that the barometer of behavior, the way to self-assess whether what you're doing is or is not ethical. Uh, I don't know if you remember. You used to say. You should ask yourself if you would want your grandmother to read about what you'd done on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Absolutely. But, you know, we seem to be living in this world, almost post-shame world now. It, it, I, I think Nixon was genuinely humiliated when this came to the fore. And look, I'm no fan of Nixon, but he eventually did the right thing, right? He resigned for the good of the nation. It was back in a time where politicians could be scandalized. Yeah. Oh, are we past that? You know, what's interesting is you're talking, JT, it, uh, it occurs to me, and I've said this many times over the years, but if there's one major difference, uh, it's that uh, there are no secrets in the world. There's no place to hide. Mm. The world is perfectly transparent. So the question becomes then, uh, are there more scandals or are we just much more aware of it, given social media and everything else? That you just can't get away with anything, and especially today. We have an issue of stakeholder activism yeah. that is being imprinted upon companies. And the question for them is, do I get politically involved because I want to protect my workers? I want to protect my customers. I want to protect my or do we remain silent, as Bob Chapek did in Disney uh, when the uh, don't say gay bill was passed in Florida and then suffer the wrath, the backlash of being silent on that issue? 
before he finally decided to take some action. Yeah. Well, and and then suffered consequently, right? And so did Disney. And to your point, you know, when we talk about stakeholder activism, we used to think about it. And and I, you know, I used to write a regular column for NACD for the National Association of Corporate Directors. And sort of my last column with them is I was railing a little bit against this notion of shareholder primacy. And I was saying, essentially, we need to change two letters. We need to change from shareholder to stakeholder. And I, and I know you and I agree on that point. Totally. But that's contrary to what we tend to hear. I mean, it's certainly contrary to, you know, Milton Friedman and his contention that it's certainly not in an organization's milieu within their repertoire. They they shouldn't be ethical or unethical. They can't be, be anthropomorphizing to claim they could be either way. Ayn Rand and accept objectivism talks about, you know, the, that the responsibility is is just to self or in the case of a corporation to the shareholders. Aren't you see, I don't know, maybe it's just my misperception, but that seems to be more predominating the conversation these days. It it tends to be more of, well, you know, it's it's in my organization's interest. Who gives a darn if it's in the societal interest? Yeah. Uh, the father of stakeholder theory is a guy by the name of Ed Freeman, who's down at the Darden School at UVA. And he essentially says that what stakeholder theory says is that you should treat all stakeholders equally, not favor one over the other. So it's not like, mm-hmm. okay, we'll take care of the shareholder first, and then once they're taken care of, we'll attend to the needs of the other stakeholders. Uh, Freeman says, no, you cannot subordinate the claims of one stakeholder to others. And so he's been promoting this thing for decades now. And the conversation is there. The Business Roundtable adopted a platform in 2019, June, uh, that basically calls for treating all stakeholders equally. Uh, The uh, uh, World Economic Forum has come out with stakeholder capitalism, essentially arguing the same thesis. And, you know, we really do. And by the way, let's, let's just be real here for a second. I have long said that reputation risk today is at least as as strategic operating and financial risk. And all it takes is a rumor or a hint of impropriety or malfeasance, and your market capitalization goes down. Disney's stock has fallen 25% since they hit the uh, papers. Well, but let me be a devil's advocate and argue the other side, which I don't agree with, by the way. I truly will be uh, acting as the devil's advocate here. And let me say, so I'm the CEO of a company, and I say to myself, you know what? Reputation risk be damned. It turns out that uh, in the market nowadays, it's fleeting. People are mercurial. They'll forget the scandal today and they'll go on to the next thing tomorrow. Politicians are certainly operating that way currently, right? It doesn't matter if Kevin McCarthy gets caught lying on tape. Uh, That used to be the end of your career. Now, eh, we'll go on to the next thing tomorrow. Uh, and with businesses also, I, I think one could argue, even with Disney, was their stock impacted because they didn't stand up or because they did, right? Yeah. Uh, and so you could argue both sides of that. And so what do you say to the CEO who says, I'll just fold it into the profit and loss statement. I'll just say to myself, you know what? I'll engage in this unethical, even illegal activity. I'll pay the fine and that'll be fine. Yeah. And by the way, that for a long time was the answer to uh, issues like this is pay the fine and move on. 
And more recently, however, uh, the Department of Justice has come out and said, if you are before us uh, for an issue that we have investigated and are guilty, we're not only going to consider action against you based on that issue of malfeasance, we're going to take your entire history mm. of malfeasance on other issues and consider that in the charging statements that we make. And to me, that's a significant step forward because, you know, you just can't get away with it. And then, as you say, uh, have moral amnesia, uh, you know, and five years later, do it again and get away with it. It's just that's not going to be the case. No, that's heartening. I, I wasn't aware of that. And to me, I mean, that helps at least to start to overcome. We see all the time those of us who are watching from the cheap seats who aren't on, you know, the boards of Fortune 500, Fortune 5000 companies are looking back and saying these banks engage in these wrongful practices, Purdue Pharma, uh, whoever the companies are, there's only a slight chance they're going to be caught and held accountable. And if they are, it's just the cost of doing business. And from what you're saying, we're starting to make at least motions in the direction to start to rectify some of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I, I have long defined ethics as uh, how we choose and how we respond to everyday situations. And the way we express our choices is both through our actions as well as our inactions, which is to say it's not just what we do that matters. It's also what we don't do when confronted by an issue. And so we've got to put into context, uh, ethics isn't just about an act of malfeasance, it's about inaction when we say it. Uh, activism today is, is being slammed for years of sexual harassment in their culture. Uh, you know, it's, everything's rising to the surface and, and they didn't do anything about it, the CEO, and he's gonna get a huge payout, like $800 million right. when uh, Microsoft buys them. But it's, it's crazy. Well, yeah, but it's, you know, tantamount to what my Roman Catholic friends would refer to as a sin of omission, oh, yeah. I guess, is oh, what yeah. you're referring to here. And, and and that really is a head scratcher. It makes you wonder, you know, Jake, one of our producers, he and I were talking when we were first setting up this show and talking about editorial bias. And I told him, I, we want this, these conversations to be as open as possible. And I told him as, as, completely unbiased. And he told me it's, there's no such thing. Not only are we inherently introducing a bias by what guests we invite on and what topics we talk about by those we don't invite on also. And and I think very much to your point, it's, you know, I, I, the most recent, uh, very salient example we have is with the sanctions uh, against Russia as a consequence of their right. invasion of Ukraine. You know, was, was McDonald's right to end all business in Russia. I, I mean, I think they were, absolutely. But was that the right choice? And what about the other company that didn't do that? That's correct. Right? To your point, they're making a choice too. Yep, yep. You've got uh, three uh, categories there. You've got those that closed their operations completely, those that suspended their operations, and those that continue to do business in Russia. And each of those are choices that they're making. Uh, they can be consequential. Have they been? I couldn't tell you yet. Uh, maybe too early, but uh, they can be consequential for sure. Yeah. But, you know, at the risk of ensuring that we're not anthropomorphizing and we're not ascribing these decisions to, you know, this entity that doesn't really exist, at the end of the day, it's the corporate officers who are making these decisions. It's the C-level executives. It's the board. It's actual human beings. And I, and I tend... I think that people 
other than, you know, you and I, we sit on boards, we work with these folks. We think of them as actual human beings who, who eat and put on their pants and shave or, you know, or, uh, or, or don't in the mornings. And we have a conception of these as human beings. And I think too many people tend to think of them as just these entities, right? Uh, Acme company is ethical or unethical, but at the end of the day, it's really the humans that occupy it. And, you know, it's interesting too. We are obviously a very complicated people. Uh, and in today's day and age, as probably as a result of social media more than anything, we look at the world through different filters. So, you know, one could be a moral filter, another could be business and profits, another could be political. You know, we have all these different filters that we make decisions about. So where, where do you find your moral center that enables you to make constructive decisions? And, and by the way, we're imperfect. So there are no perfect answers out there to issues. There are better answers and there are worse answers. And I've always said that collectively we can make better decisions and hopefully avoid worse decisions when confronted by ethical issues. But if we make those decisions based on our filters, don't we run the risk of of coming up against this notion of almost moral relativism yep. where, look, to me, this is the right thing to do. And, and when CEO uh, A says, uh, she says, you know, I think the right thing to do is to frankly rip off our customers because, look, they make more customers. Doesn't matter. We're not going to saturate the market anytime soon and we're making a ton of money. Why not rip them off? And that is her or his you know, sort of filter that they see the world through, how, how do we get away from it just becoming idiosyncratic to the individual? How do we say you don't get to have your own morality and impose that on a society or, or should you? I don't know. Yeah. Now you do hear a lot of people say, well, my ethics say. Yeah. It's not just your ethics, you know. Let's, let's put in context, uh, where do we learn ethics? We learn uh, on our grandparents' knee, at home, with family, schools, religions, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, Marine Corps. Each one of these social systems that we exist in tells us what's right, what's wrong, what's in, what's out, what's good, what's bad, what's acceptable, and what's not. And you won't be surprised if I suggested to you uh, that means that there are six billion possibilities of what's right and wrong in the world because each one of us grew up in a different system and a different pathway through all these social systems. Sure. So how do we wrestle with all of those messages and come away with a moral center, a uh, moral compass that guides us? And as I said before, there, there's no perfect answers out there. No, nobody owns ethics. But if we try and strive to make better decisions and avoid worse decisions, I think that's the hope for the human species is uh, to put your cap on. I, every few years, I sit down and I write uh, a statement of what I believe in. And some of it's tongue in cheek and so forth. Uh, it's, it's posted on my website. It's called I Believe. But it's, uh, I think we need to sit down and really discuss what, what do we believe in? It raises two points that, that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. The first is then Again, playing devil's advocate, if there are 6 billion different perspectives, and, and I'll argue there are probably more than that because people have aren't necessarily internally congruent in, in their beliefs or ethics, right? It's uh, There's been a lot of work on that. And, you know, I'm, I 
believe in animal rights, but I'm having a stake tonight kind of. A yeah. thing, right? <laughs> and, and look, uh, we're inconsistent as, as beings, but even if we had just six billion perspectives, I know you're not saying this, but what do you say to the person who says then ethics really is just the consensus of the mass? It's just what we agree on at the time. And if that's the case, then the ethicality, the morality of Nazi Germany was fine. It was, you, you can't really argue with it because, hey, the mo- a majority of the people believed in these things. And so does that de facto make it right? If we currently, and then is it even how you define your society? So if you buy into the whole QAnon silliness, yep. do you, are, are you now ethical and moral in your judgment? Are you, is storming the capital and, and fomenting an insurrection, is that now an ethical, moral act? Yeah, and, and I think what it argues too, JT, is uh, we've got to know who our role models are uh, and what we believe they stand for. And, you know, we look up and emulate people, uh, both positive and negative, as you bring up the Hitler example, you know, or the guys who are storming the Capitol. You know, who, who are those role models and what, what do they espouse and why do we emulate, you know, following them? Uh, and it's, it, all of this is complicated. It's, uh, yeah. Well, and you and I are of an age where it used to be when we were kids, everyone had a hero. Everyone had someone they looked up to. It might even be your own family, right? It might be your dad, your grandpa, your grandma. Yep. Uh, for me, it was my grandma. Uh, when I was very little, uh, that was, you know, sort of my hero and who I wanted. And so that's why I think when you said you're, you should judge your actions by whether or not you're proud of your grandmother reading them on the front page of the wall street journal always resonated so strongly with me, but it's now considered almost passe or quaint. I think if you stopped the average 30 year old and asked them who their hero is, Mm -hmm. what they're being fed most often is, well, you should be your hero. You know, you should, and that is sort of the Ayn Randian, the fountainhead, you know, Atlas Shrugged, this kind of thinking is, well, you should look to yourself. You you should be your own hero. And so how do you draw morality from that? So other than to say, well, you know, I want uh, what that guy has. Yeah, it's it really, when you look at the, you know, the, the younger generations, uh, uh, they are very me-centric and operating uh, from that place. So part of the reason we're having the great resignation right now is they're saying, hey, you're not taking care of me anymore. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to walk. You know, So millions have walked to new jobs and higher pay. God bless them. But uh, are they walking for the right reasons? I guess I might argue also. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've always argued with Maslow and Maslow's hierarchy of needs culminates in the notion of self-actualization. And I've always pushed back on that and said, there's actually something above that. And it's being a part of something bigger than yourself. And and I think there are times in the history of humanity when we value that more or less. And in my reading of history, that tends to be a great barometer of the success of the future. You know, one can argue that there were a number of reasons why Rome fell. But when you look at, you know, the, the nexus of why so many of these civilizations go by the wayside, it tends to be when they lose a sense of a common identity, when they lose a sense of belongingness, of being a part of something on the one hand. On the other hand, that's also been the catalyst for, you know, some of the worst things that have ever happened in human history, Yeah, right? This 
overdeveloped sense of nationalism, of of you know misplaced patriotism, of religious zealotry, these sorts of things. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, when you were talking about uh, being part of something bigger than yourself, it brought to mind Victor Frankl's great work, Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. And in it, he says, success, like happiness, cannot be pursued, but can only ensue as the result of being dedicated to a cause other than self or to a person other than self. And it's that sense of giving. Leadership is outward facing. It's giving. It's not taking. And we have too many people in the world who are intent on taking from the world rather than giving to it. I have found over my lifetime, I'm sure you have too, JT, is the more I give away, the more comes back to me. Yeah. And I don't ask for it. I don't ask for a quid pro quo. It's just good things happen. You know, and that's, uh, I think that has been perverted into this idea of pay it forward because dot, dot, dot. And you come to it from a very different place as to why this notion of good deeds are are their own reward, right? Uh, Just to be able to do or to help. And that's why uh, I know you do. And I, my charitable givings are anonymous uh, because I I genuinely don't want anything from it. Angie and I don't even declare it on our taxes. We decide you know, this is what we should do because we should do it. But uh, I should mention to the uh, the people who are listening, there are two great resources that um, that Darcy brings to mind. One is uh, a book, Ishmael, uh, by Daniel Quinn. Are you familiar with the book? Yeah, I remember from years ago. Great book. It was, I mean, the basic premise of the book, and I'm they give this away on page two, so I'm not ruining anything for you, but it's a, uh, a sentient talking gorilla who gets to look at humanity from the outside and he looks at the takers and the givers. Uh, and it, it's just a fascinating read. So I'd recommend that. The other one that uh, Darcy brings to mind though, is there was this program that was originally started by Edward R. Murrow uh, called this, I believe. And uh, if you have never heard them, I strongly recommend it. I have a, another colleague friend who also teaches at Wharton and I convinced him to incorporate it into the courses he teaches now that people come on, come into class with uh, an ability to be able to state their opinions, right? What is it that I believe in? What are my core fundamental beliefs? It's something that, uh, as Darcy said, he posts right on his website. I don't post on all my website, but it's a practice I go back to again and again. Uh, and I keep doing and I reexamine and I say, you know, my beliefs have shifted over time. And I think it's it's important to concretize those, to codify those, to contend with, confront those things. But, you know, what that brings up for me, though, is this recognition that not just my values, my ethics, my morality evolves and changes over time. Is that true for ethics and morality and values in general? And if that's the case, aren't we on ever-moving ground? Our values, our morals, our ethics the same today as they were when you and I were much younger people? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I would probably argue that they should be. But to your point, the world around us is changing so fast. The, The speed of change is blinding right now. And so how do you remain centered in a world that's happening so fast? And, and I, I would argue that I think we really need to dig down into our center and to know 
that this, I believe, as Morrow called it, uh, JT, mm-hmm. um, if you if you hold on to your b- beliefs, I, I read an article a few years ago, uh, brought down to University of Florida as an executive in residence, and just before I left, I got this two-page article I found, and I loved it because the title of it uh, captured me. Uh, the title said, "If you ever cross over the line, if you ever cross over the line," the author writes, "you can never go back." Wow. But he goes on to say in the second page, he says, but if you are confronted by a serious ethical issue and you make the right decision, your values will never be challenged again because they will be hardened and and so forth. And so, you know, we are we're confronted by ethical issues throughout our lifetime. Uh, How do we make them? You you know, people think it was just a statement of historical fact. But when uh, when Caesar crossed the Rubicon. So crossing that line, right, Idelia asked, the die is cast. I think that recognition that once done can't be undone. Mm-hmm. But to your point, once you have stood that line also, right, once you have been willing to uh, incur the wrath, you know, it's, um, uh, I don't know if you've been following them, but the January 6th committee hearings, they had um, uh, the Republican Speaker of the House uh, for the state of Arizona, Rusty, gosh, I forget his but, you know, is this moral, ethical, wonderful man who I will almost assure anyone that I disagree with fundamentally on every issue there is, but still have tremendous respect for the fact that here's someone who was confronted with almost unimaginable pressure yep. and yep. said, these are my values. This is who I am. Yeah, it's uh, and that's the test. Yeah. You know, it's not the everyday decisions that we make, but the test is when there is a significant issue that confronts you. And you choose to make the right decision. Uh, you'll know you'll know what you stand for. And if you don't stand for something, you'll stand for anything, which is the flip side of this. Uh, and we have a lot of guys in Washington that stand for anything. So, well, and that's what you're seeing right now is you know so many politicians and I'll argue even CEOs have become essentially wind socks. They wake up in the morning, put their finger in the air and say, which way is the wind blowing? And okay, that's my opinion right now. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, sort of the the compliment to that, and I don't mean compliment in a complimentary way, but <laughs> the parallel to that is you'll see so many entities, organizations, politicians, whomever it is, say, these are my values, mm. but they wear them on their sleeve. You know, it's, um, yeah. I, I have sitting, uh, I have this incredible, you know, I have this collection of crap in my office, or at least that's, (laughs) I think they're treasures. Some people think it's trash, but one of the items I have that I'm particularly fond of, I have this crystal paperweight and I'm actually holding it in my hand right now. And it has those like successory type posters. Remember we used to have those back in like the eighties and um, God, I'm really dating myself, but these, it, it has these four around the four sides of it and they are excellence, respect, integrity, communication, and they read like the integrity one says, we work with customers and prospects openly, honestly, and sincerely. When we say we will do something, we will do it. When we say we cannot or will not do something, then we do it. And I think it's wonderful, but on the top of it, this crystal paperweight is etched the name of the company that distributed it, and the company is Enron, (laughs) their vision and values. So, you know, it's great when you make up this gorgeous, you know, paperweight and you have these things, but, you know, I think to your point, right, just saying these things, uh, uh, because this is what people want to hear, 
uh, that doesn't quite cut it, does it? No, and, I, and I'll give you a living example right now. So Goldman Sachs has been sued by several uh, teacher pension funds uh, for $13 billion because they uh, had a massive, serious uh, conflict of interest. They invited a uh, hedge fund operator to come in to select the uh, toxic assets that he wanted into a, and Goldman would sell them. And then he goes out and he shorts the market and makes a billion dollars on it. And so the, the pension fund sue Goldman. It's, it's uh, the Supreme Court just pushed it back to the uh, lower court for some clarification. But everybody agreed. Their words were, our clients always come first. We have the best conflict of interest policies uh, than any company. All of these glowing statements, that's what they're being sued for, for having all these wonderful statements. And they're going to wind up losing. I mean, this is a $13 billion lawsuit. They're going to wind up losing. It's, it's crazy. Wow. It, it is crazy. And although that sort of brings us back to the earlier part of the conversation is they'll lose, but will he you know, if if it's a matter of agency and it's people who run the companies, and by the way, one of the things I, I argued about with Milton Friedman's argument, Milton Friedman's contention that, you know, you, you can't attribute moral or immoral action to a company because it's anthropomorphizing. I, I mean, my re- response was always, oh, so if the Nazi party incorporated, they'd be fine. Uh, that's ridiculous, right? It's we, we have to hold the people who occupy it accountable. And so what I'm wondering is, even with this scandal, will the CEO end up being held to task? Is he going to be bankrupted and made to live in, you know, a a shack somewhere and have to eat TV dinners every night? I doubt it. No, of course not. That's not going to happen. Right. And so that's, that's part of my problem is, you know, I think it's wonderful that we're starting to hold organizations somewhat more accountable and we're not making it just the cost of doing business. So I'm left wondering, even if the company, the organization, the entity is being punished somehow, if the individuals who occupy it, who run it, who make those decisions, they're still profiting. Uh, I'll never forget, you know, many, many years ago, I was working for, of all places, a law firm when I was going through my undergrad work. And I was working for them as a paralegal and an investigator. And there was an accident on a crane that happened to be, and it had nothing to do with with the person who owned the property. It was with the company who made the crane and the worker and all that. And it was, you know, a personal injury lawsuit. It was no big deal, really. But it was on the property of a new home being built by and for Michael Milken. <laughs> Milken, you know, had already served time for junk bonds, right? And for and he was vilified. And this home was on Lake Tahoe in Nevada. And it was, at the time, it was this palatial estate. You know, it was uh, absolutely extraordinary. And I was thinking, okay, you know, Michael Milken, uh, he ended up doing, I, I forget what it was, a year, three years in, in jail, whatever. Uh I would do that if you told me you come out and you still get, you know, $100 million, $300 million. It's like, all right. So, you know, even – and that degree of of punishment typically it doesn't even occur. You know, everyone's right now mad at Elon Musk for all the nonsense with Twitter and, and the stuff he's pulling with Tesla and whatever it is. Nobody is naive enough to think that, well, now Elon Musk is actually going to be punished. And so, you know, I have to wonder, are ethics effectively caste-based? 
uh, in, in not just in the United States, but globally? Do we punish people as a consequence of the caste they occupy? Yeah, that's interesting. No, the answer to that is obviously no. Uh, people get away with it. Yeah. Milken paid $600 million in a fine, but he's still a multi-billionaire. So right. where's the punishment? Right, exactly. It's, you know, I, I happened to go to uh, court a couple of months ago on a, a traffic violation that I won, by the way. It was a, a BS. In fact, the, the cop, the judge asked me, so why do you think the officer pulled you over? And I told him, boredom. Uh, <laughs> I, I was a cop once. I knew there was no PC for this. And he wrote me a ticket for an expired registration sticker during the COVID pandemic when you had this, you know, so stupid. But while I was there, there was a, uh, this woman was being fined. Uh, and I forget what the, the crime was, but it was some stupid little nothing also for $350. And she is bawling and she's telling the judge that's food. I make minimum wage. I will not be able to feed my family and my children. And the judge was, you know, oh, well, that sucks. Uh, and she's, I mean, I ended up paying her fine for her, which frankly made the judge angry because for me, you know, $350 is irrelevant. Who cares? Uh, but for her, and so here, you know, we, we, we talk about everyone being equal under the law, everyone, the law applying to all of us. And that's, Bullshit, right? Especially when the punishment uh, can't be concordant with uh, what would be punishing. Yeah, and that's one of the things that uh, is tearing the country apart, among many other things, which is the inequality in income and wealth. Is, uh, you know, the haves are doing well and the have-nots, and the, then there's the have-not-yet-paid-for-what-they-haves. Yeah, you know, and to me, and I know you'll agree, it's not just here, it's it's everywhere. We um, haven't seen you in a little bit, but I haven't shared with you. We opened up uh, an office in South Africa, and we're doing some great work there. We're helping the South African government battle fraud, waste, abuse, and corruption, and helping to ensure the equitable distribution of resources and opportunities. Uh, we're fighting a good fight there. But what I see is, you know, I got interviewed on their, on one of their television stations, and I talked about this pervasive ever-present and remaining economic apartheid that remains in South Africa. And how do you come out from that, right? How do you write those things when, you know, the golden rule becomes whoever has the gold makes the rules? Uh, how do you fight something like that? And, and now, I think you would agree, increasingly, that's being imposed on even our ethicality and our morality. Those who are able are making the rules and the rights. And, you know, I, I think, I don't know, what are your feelings about how even some of the vehicles, the mechanisms like social media, how does this play into these issues? It's uh, you're, you're absolutely right. It's uh, those that have, they're the ones making the rules, obviously always in favor of themselves and uh, a disregard. Uh, the, the elderly and the poor are basically invisible to them. Yeah. Uh, it's a, they're a drain on society is how they're viewed from an economic lens. And uh, they're not productive. Uh, they don't add value. All they do is complain all the time. It's untenable. And it's ripping the country apart. And it's ripping the world apart. I mean, you see it pervasively in South Africa, of course. Sure. You and I remember when we were kids, we used to be mortified at the fact that it actually wasn't true. 
but that old sort of meme that went around that the the Inuit people would put their elderly on ice floes and let them float out and die. It wasn't true, but we were mortified by that, right? My goodness, how do you not respect your elders? How do you not take value from what they can contribute to the society and to all of you? But we sort of do that now, right? We put people on little ice flows when they aren't optimally productive. And we say, eh, you know, nothing to be gained, whether that's putting them out to pasture. And I look, I know there are laws against ageism and firing someone just because of their age, but you and I know there are ways around that. And so the organization will retire you, uh, you know, use at-will employment law protection to be able to just get rid of you if you're superfluous. And the society itself also sort of disenfranchises you and ignores you. Yeah, it's painful to watch. It really is. It's- you know, it, but then it's not only painful to watch. I have to ask you, and this is one I keep coming back to. I, I've talked to several friends who are very affluent. Um, the, these guys, you know, I, you and I have done fairly well in our lives. These guys are sickeningly rich, but they're good guys. Most of the people I know who are very wealthy are women. But I know a bunch of wealthy men and women who've done very well in their lives. And I always ask them, could you have done even better if you were willing to violate the rules? If you were willing to just screw people over, do whatever's convenient, do whatever's in your interest, and rob people blind. And to a person, they all say, absolutely, right? And I think you and I have seen circumstances in our life where, again, we, we're not crying and complaining. We've done well in our lives. But Keith, could you have done better if you were willing to just be unethical to to violate the rules? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. But then, am I a sucker? Does that make me a sucker for following the rules? Yeah, I've I've walked away from lucrative opportunities because I detested the people that were inviting me into the situations. Yeah, you know that that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where you got to make a decision, draw the line in the sand. It's uh, the Rubicon. Well, I I won't give the particulars of it, but you'll remember one of the first ventures you and I were ever going to work on together, we were not thrilled with the organization or with the person we were working with, and we just walked away from it, right? Uh, But does that make us suckers? Does that, you know, do we say to ourselves, you know what, get over your own sense of self-importance, of your own pretend ethicality? And just make the money. I don't think that's true. I like to hope that's not true. But I think increasingly, especially younger people are asking themselves that. If these public people who are bizarrely successful aren't following the rules and they're becoming even more successful as a consequence, why should I? And so what do you tell them? Yeah. (laughs) Some people don't listen. So it doesn't matter. You know, it's... uh, uh, my my philosophy is that, uh, you know, if I can help one person out each day, you know, to make the world a little bit brighter one by one, uh, that's the only thing I can. I can't tell people how to live their lives. Uh, I can only model for myself what I think is a good and useful life. But if one by one people somehow uh, have a greater sense of consciousness and awareness of these issues and the struggle of making decisions around them than the world a little bit. Now, I'm no fool. For all the years I put into this ethics field, uh, I haven't moved the needle one bit. Uh, I'm not kidding myself. But I go to sleep at night knowing that I tried. 
And and to me, that's the important thing. Well, and let me tell you, and I don't say this to be overly kind, that is absolutely not true. I, I know, speaking for myself, speaking for the other fans, followers, uh, even the frenemies that I've spoken to over the years, you've been this guiding, you, you've certainly been a guiding light to me. Uh, and, and I can't imagine not to others. I've talked to other people who have, uh, who you've been uh, a teacher to, a professor, a a model, a role model to. So I think that's absolutely not true. But putting that aside, what do we do? What, how do we move forward in a positive direction? You know, what we like to make this show a lot about is not just ruminating, not just griping, carping, and complaining about what was or what is, what we'd like to do is leave our listeners with a little bit of not just hope, but even guidance, action, direction, right? For them to be able to say, tomorrow can be better than today. And so if we were to give you infinite resources, not magical powers, but uh, a lot of powers, if you could change or do anything to put us this ship back on the right course, what would you do? What would you recommend, Keith? Yeah, I'm going to get a silly example, but when the pandemic started, a small group of us, five people, uh, started to do weekly uh, Zoom calls and talk to each other. And, and these were all senior executives, uh, uh, st- some still are, you know, very capable people, all come out of the ethics space and so forth. But we have never talked about business. Mm. We've only mm. talked about life and death and day-to-day human battle with the world. But in it, uh, inherently, is a conversation about uh, ethics and morality, spirituality. You know, there's no overt uh, religious tone to this, but it's really getting down to the things that matter uh, in life. And I think each of us needs to find a community like that. Uh, Bill George, who wrote the book, uh, The North Star, uh, uh, professor at Harvard, former CEO at Medtronic, uh, he, he's been part of a group for his whole life, his whole career, and it straightened him out. Early in his career, he was hungry for success. But as he got into this group that he meets with on a regular basis, he decided to let go and commit himself to you know higher causes. And I admire Bill tremendously. I've known him for many years. But I think if we're lucky, and you know, I, I've often said too, JT, people like us, we find each other. We come from different backgrounds completely. Uh, uh, you know, we struggled in our lives, but we somehow find each other. And the more we can connect with like-minded people, the stronger our convictions become. So if people had a chance to connect with a small group, to put together a small group, to meet frequently with friends who share values with you, uh, to me, I think it's a starting point because it'll, it'll keep us on the straight and narrow. You know, you you bring up three things that uh, I just want you to make point of. The first is, uh, it strikes me how the older you get, the more you realize that what the world at large defines as success becomes increasingly nearly laughable. You know, as yeah. you and I get older, it's not the car you drive or the you know the, the opulent vacation that you take or having. You know, I, I was actually just at the the liquor store by my house to pick up a bottle of wine and they had a bottle of uh, whiskey in there for $60,000. I, I kid you not. And yeah. I say to myself, really, you know, I'm going to pay what I would pay for 
might as well buy a really nice car for a family I could just give it to. That would make me a lot happier than one bottle of scotch. And I would never be able to tell the difference. I'm not sophisticated enough between it and, you know, uh, a McCullen 12, which costs 50 bucks. So it's that. But it's also, you know, what you remind me of is even if you put that aside and if you truly are interested in just success, um, I was mentioning in a previous conversation, having read and been influenced by the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. And one of the things he attributes his success to, his enormous success, and and those of you who don't know, Benjamin Franklin is still on the list of one of the most, uh, well, one of the wealthiest people who ever lived. Franklin wasn't just a folksy guy. He was richer than dirt. And he attributes much of his success to a group he called the Hunto, which was exactly like what you're talking about, was getting together with these folks to bet ideas back and forth with and from a business perspective, but then from a non-business perspective. And here's the third thing. Years ago, I was invited to a lunch at the Union League Club and I had no idea what it was. I didn't know anything about it. And uh, I was told when I went in, they had me check my briefcase. And and this is back in the days when I actually wore a blazer and carried a briefcase. Uh, I think I even still wore a tie back then. It was so long ago. But um, then they told us, or when we sat down, when I sat down with the gent who invited me in, I started talking about business and he told me, I'm sorry, but that's not permitted here. What? You're not even allowed to talk about business in the Union League Club. And I think that's very analogous to what you're talking about, Keith, is the value that comes from just the the fraternity, sorority, the company of being in and with good people. Yep, totally. It's uh, I always love to, when I meet somebody new, I said, tell, tell me your story. The richness that you get from other people's stories. And I've always said that the world isn't made up of atoms. It's made up of stories. And we not only have our stories, but we are our stories. And when we tell our stories, other people hear their stories too. And it's, we're all alike. You know, and we're all, everyone is different. Everyone's the same. And I got to tell you, no, because you just gave away my secret. Because for years, uh, ever since you asked me at that lunch when you invited me, from the Better Business Bureau, that's exactly what we did. We sat down and you said, tell me your story. I've been doing the same thing for 20 years. And people are always like, wow, that's so cool. And thank you. I inv- No, I, <laughs> I tell them this is exactly how my mentor got the conversation rolling and, and learned about me. And, you know, to that point, I, I think that's so important, Keith. You talk about how we do have these stories, how we're, we're not just you know, I, I think in Western society in particular, and unfortunately more around men than women, we come to so identify ourselves with our profession. Most men, when you meet them, will say, my name is and I am, Yeah, which is yeah. interesting, right? I am an accountant. I am a dentist. I am a, a, a pilot. Whatever it is they are, women uh, are more holistic about that, tend to be saner about that more often, right? My wife, uh, you know, Angie's been a nurse for 40 years. She doesn't introduce herself and say, hi, I'm Angie and I'm a nurse because she is more dimensional than that, right? She's a mom, a grandma, a a wife, you know, someone who needlepoints, whatever she does, right? It's got this, this much richer dimension. And I think to your point, you know, so many of us come to define ourselves by what it is we do and not who we are. 
And I think bringing more of who we are to work could be so beneficial to us. And to that point, I understand uh, secondhand through my producers, I didn't know this, that you're writing a book, that you're working on a book. Tell me about that. Yeah, so the book, it's funny. I wrote a book about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, I knew that. Sole audience was my wife and two kids. And it was <laughs> to document, you know, 209 pages of my life. And you know, they always listen to the stories and, you know, life wasn't always easy, just like uh, yours hasn't been easy. And so, um, and then I've been asked for many years by a whole bunch of people much smarter than me, you got to write a book about the field of business ethics and nothing could bore me more. I mean, I've, I've lived, <laughs> I've helped shape the profession but writing a history book, you know, just that bores me to tears. But I decided that I could write a book about the people and the thought leaders and the poets uh, and the experiences that I have had that have shaped who I am and ultimately allowed me to let go of a career in business and go into full time uh, the ethics profession at a time when there was no profession. It didn't exist back in yeah. the 80s it it was born on november 1st 1991 and that's a story for another time but yeah i come home tell my wife in the mid-1980s i want to quit a career in banking i was successful in and uh, go out into the wilderness uh, <laughs> and yet you're still celebrating your 50th anniversary so exactly yeah quite a testament to who you married but this book is uh, all the thought leaders and experiences that i've had both positive and negative that shaped who I am and motivated me uh, to go down this path. It's, uh, and, you know, is, is there a book there? It's like two books. One's about my life, but it's also about the profession. And I think there's a lot of leadership takeaways uh, in it from the thought leaders that I've referenced in it. Well, uh, and I'll argue those very purposely or not two books. That's such an integrated, uh, wonderful way to be able to communicate this to show that this isn't, you know, uh, that great American philosopher Yogi Berra once said, in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. And, you know, one of the lessons I take from your life is it doesn't have to be that distinction, right? There isn't the pedagogic and the practical. There isn't the the theoretical and the real. And showing people that it's possible to live a successful, wonderful life where you Conduct yourself in a way that lets you sleep at night uh, without being a sociopath uh, and still be able to sleep at night and look at yourself in the mirror every morning. You know, th these things are possible. And I think while I ask you what, uh, what our listeners can take away, and I absolutely appreciate the notion that coming together in community and being able to have others that you can have these deep and abiding conversations with, I think that is absolutely a part of it. Uh, it's self-serving, but I think even vicariously engaging in conversations like this and spending some time listening in to, well, the guests that I invite on, these great minds, and hearing some of their perspective. But also, you know, to your earlier point, having people you can model yourself after, that you can learn from, that you can see that uh, th this is possible. It's possible to do well while doing some good. It's possible to live a good life while doing good. And that's frankly what I've always taken away from my relationship with you, with, with being able to know you. And so, you know, Keith, as always, it's been an absolute delight 
chatting with you. Uh, I owe you lunch next time. I'm buying. And I know you usually insist. I'm buying next time. And I'm going to look forward to continuing the conversation. But I, what I will ask you is please agree to come back and let's continue this conversation. I think our listeners learned so much from hearing your, your wise words. And I would love to get your take on, well, a bunch of things I think that we could go a lot deeper on. Happy to. Look forward to it, JT. All right, my friend. Thank you very much. Be well. Okay, you too. Take care. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for this episode. We really appreciate your support and hope you enjoyed the conversation. We just wanted to take this opportunity to remind everyone that the Tomorrow Today podcast is a nonprofit venture committed to bringing awareness to important social issues. Funding for this episode, like all our episodes, has been provided by Protected by AI and Codelock. Protected by AI develops leading-edge solutions at the intersection of technology and psychology. Check out some of the ways Protected by AI can revolutionize your organization by visiting protectedby.ai, protectedby.ai. And Codelock? Codelock is a game-changing software security solution that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has said, and I'm quoting you, quote, Codelock appears to have the capability to stop the most sophisticated criminal malware." end quote. You can learn more about Codelock by visiting codelock.it. Codelock.it. And uh, yeah, thanks again for tuning into the conversation. And please do check out Protected by AI and Codelock. Tomorrow today is only possible because of their sponsorship and because you're listening. And be sure to visit us at our website, tomorrowtoday.show, where you'll find show notes, links, and most importantly, ways to subscribe to the show. You can also give us a review, leave us a message, or tell us what topics you'd like us to address in upcoming episodes. Thanks to all of you again for joining the conversation and for helping us make a better tomorrow today. <laughs>